heresy is an over-contextualization. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bend too far in the direction of culture in order to be relevant. I think the impulse is evangelistic early on, but the problem is we turn into a parrot of culture instead of a prophet to culture. Hey friends, thanks for joining us for another episode on the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. I'm Jaden from the team here at CCLN. If you're new to the podcast this September, I want to say a special welcome to you. Our heart through this podcast and all of what we do at CCLN is simple. We just want to strengthen pastors in Canada. So by hosting conversations with Canadian pastors and different Christian thought leaders here, we hope that you would find fuel to continue serving the church where you are, hope to be borrowed from other leaders, and ultimately that you would be drawn deeper into Jesus and his vision for what it means to be a pastor. Today, we hosted an interview with Chris Price, who is no stranger to the podcast, but in case you don't know him, Chris has pastored for over 17 years in Canada, with 15 of those years being in the lead seat. And in 2020, he, Jason, and a pastor named Jeremy King set out to plant the Way Church here in Vancouver, where Chris is currently the primary teaching pastor. Chris has also co-authored a number of books, including The Whole Church and Everyday Apologetics. And just to name it here, Chris also happens to be one of my favorite preachers ever. After wading into Chris's personal story of coming to faith, which is incredibly compelling, by the way, Jason and Chris spend the majority of this conversation zeroing in on the topic of preaching, specifically five learnings Chris has unearthed preaching to the people of Vancouver over the last number of years. Now, though this has been a highly requested topic on the podcast, we know that not everyone listening preaches. Some of you are up at the pulpit almost every week, while others hold a ton of responsibilities, but preaching isn't one of them. But wherever you land on that spectrum, I really do think this conversation will still serve you in what to consider when you communicate the gospel and biblical truth in this time. Now, before we jump in with Chris and Jason, we want to let you know that towards the end of the episode, our friend Chris Schroeder from World Vision joins us to share about their program, Chosen, which represents a significant shift in how World Vision is approaching child sponsorship in order to better empower kids to choose who they partner with. We love the spirit behind this initiative, and we want you to be in the know for how your church can get involved. So listen for Chris after the interview as he unpacks that for us a bit more. Okay, with all that said, here's our interview with Chris Price. Well, hey everyone, today we have a bit of a unique format. I'm here with Chris Price, who Mm -hmm. he and I pastor together here in Vancouver. He's also helped host this podcast before with me. Uh, who have we interviewed together? We've interviewed Ross Hastings. Dr. Ross Hastings. Dr. Ross Hastings from Regent College yeah. in Vancouver. And Brett Landry. Together, yeah. Yeah, pastor, church planner, also in Vancouver. And I think that's And you, you've you done a few interviews that have yet to be released. I have. They're in the queue. So your voice is not totally unfamiliar to our listeners. True. So it's unique that I'll be interviewing you today, but it's also unique that we're exploring a specific topic. Mm-hmm. Um we want to talk today about preaching. And uh, one of our commitments on this podcast is we're not trying to be prescriptive. We're not trying to push one model or even philosophy of ministry. We're trying to host a conversation for pastors about what it means to be a pastor in the Canadian context today, what it means mm-hmm. to be a faithful pastor. But preaching is one of those things that is such a big piece of our lives. Like whether you're listening and you're the primary communicator at your church or not. I mean, you can't escape just how big 
a part of our lives as pastors as mm-hmm. preaching is. And mm-hmm. we've chatted with Daryl Johnson about preaching. We'll do that again. Right. And today I want to lean into this to give some language to preaching in a post-Christian context, which is mm-hmm. the Canadian landscape. We'll define those terms. And the impetus for this was you did a talk, Chris, to a group of pastors, I think maybe 50 or 60 pastors, part of a North American pastoral cohort called Sea Rock Sessions. And you did a talk with like five thoughts on preaching to a Mm post-Christian context. So that's what I want to explore. Um, But the first question I have for you is, how horrible do you feel on Monday morning after you've preached on Sunday? (laughs) As I've gotten older, it's got increasingly worse. Why is it worse? It should be easier. (laughs) Well, it's... I mean, I think my body feels worse. I only ask that question more rhetorically because everyone listening, like, I just want you to know we feel the pain. Oh, yeah. I the mean, the pain of the prep, the pain of the day after. Saturday night, you're thinking about it. You're up late, wake up early Sunday morning, preach once, twice, sometimes three times in our context. And then you feel it the next day, emotionally and physically. One of the things that, um, Daryl shared recently, I heard it secondhand, um, that when we're preaching, you're not just preaching to the people in the room, you're actually preaching to the principalities and powers Hmm. in the city. And that might be one of the reasons why you feel so depleted. Like emotionally, you're trying to bridge to people. Yeah. Physically, there's this adrenaline, but then spiritually, it's not just the spiritual dynamics of the people in the room. There's also the spiritual dynamics, the city yeah. and the warfare for people's imaginations and hearts. And the I city. So do there's this feel whole war that. going on. It, it, something about preaching feels qualitatively different than teaching a class or being in a meeting, even running a meeting as far as like the pouring out, uh, the fatigue that comes, the war for your mind afterward around, was it faithful? Was it good? Were people impacted? All that kind of stuff yeah. has all ramped up after a preach. I especially found it in COVID when we were recording sermons. I would finish recording a sermon and mentally I would spiral. Yeah. I'd be like, I should never do this Chris, again. I saw that in real time. I know. And no, and then, and you can't, can't talk me out of it. No. I had to I just come out of it. I just need to give you 48 hours 48 to come hours, out of yeah. it. And uh, I mean, it's such a crazy thing. It's such a big piece of the puzzle. And I know there's you know, people listening who they love it. They have no idea what we're talking about. Yeah. 98% of people listening are like, yeah, I feel that pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to get to those five points or I don't think we'll get through all five, but I yeah. want to talk through some of them because sometimes I hear a talk like the one you gave and I do feel like, man, I've got questions, but also I want every pastor who's part of listening to CCLN to hear this and join the conversation. Um, but I thought it'd be just helpful, Chris, just to share a little bit about your story of coming to faith, because mm-hmm. in some ways I feel like when I hear how you articulate what it means to preach to post-Christian culture, it's coming from your own story of not following the Lord mm-hmm. and how God grabbed hold of your heart. So just tell me a little bit about, um, yeah, like before coming to know Jesus personally, where you're at, and then how that change and you found yourself not just following Jesus, but pastoring and teaching the Bible and studying all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I uh, I grew up in a Christian home where we went to church very regularly uh, and my parents took the faith seriously. Uh, but in high school, I rejected my faith and went hard the other direction. And I'm not just talking about like the partying and the drugs. I'm talking about being pretty ruthless and harsh 
in my relationships with my sisters mm -hmm. who were younger than me and with my own parents and that creating a pretty toxic home environment mm. in addition to all the wild living that I was doing. Yeah. Um, but when I was 20, I became a follower of Jesus. And, uh, you know, I had like this newfound excitement and passion for the Lord. You know, um, I tried the other things and the fun had bottomed out. And now I had this relationship with Jesus that was so life-giving. Um, and so I was pursuing that. And I remember, I won't name the book, but I remember I picked up a book by a bishop. Um, it was called, I will name the book. Now you've named it. I'm, I'm going to. It's called Why Christianity Must Change or Die. And I was a brand new believer. Hmm. And I was just starting to like read and become a bit more literary. And I read this book and it like systematically uh, undercut my newfound faith and the intellectual credibility of it. Or so I felt in wow. that moment. And that's as a new believer. Was this book written as like a critique of Christianity? What was the... Yeah, it was written uh, by like a more maybe progressive uh, theologian who was critiquing the faith as handed down by the church okay. through the ages. And I was not intellectually equipped as a new follower of Jesus to respond or know how to respond. And so it really knocked my feet out from under me. But because I had tried so many other things and came to faith late in my life or later in my life, I wasn't going to just chuck it. Right. But that moment was a catalyst for me starting to, to read more, discovering authors like C.S. Lewis and starting to kind of piece back together mm. a more robust faith that could withstand scrutiny. And that then translated into youth ministry, our youth group for a a season was a lot of kids with no church background, tons of questions. We would do this thing where we'd hand around a fishbowl. People would put their questions in. I'd pull the questions out, answer them, got a feel for what these kids were wrestling with. I love that you did about. that, by the way, because I think one of the feelings that we have, not just in youth ministry, but especially in youth ministry, but is like there are questions and we're terrified to answer. Mm -hmm. And I think the silence is doing more maybe damage, I don't know if damage is the right word, but the mm -hmm. silence is doing more work than even giving an imperfect answer. Mm -hmm. And uh, right now we live in a moment in the church, I feel where on some issues, there's been like the extremes, like the 5% on either side of an issue talking loudly, but then mm -hmm. like 90% of people that have maybe a more nuanced position have been relatively silent on massive yeah. areas of faith formation. Now we find ourselves with a generation kind of asking, how does my Christian faith intersect with what I'm experiencing day to day. Mm -hmm. I think the only way you really form a robust Christian worldview, apart from just some favorite verses and some rhythms in our lives, is by asking the hard questions and yeah. investigating them and delving into them. So that was early on pretty formative in my journey and then in my ministry. Yeah, And obviously that shaped how I thought about communicating to people, how I thought about our cultural moment and this reality of you know, a generation growing up without much Christian background in a post-Christian reality. Hmm. One funny memory I have, when you and I first started hanging out, you were a youth pastor as a high school student at like a church down the road, but the, it was right. in the Tri-Cities in, in the Lower Mainland of BC. All the churches were working together on different stuff. So you and I got to know each other and then you helped me a ton with writing the Alpha Youth Series because at this that point in your journey, you had done, you're, you know, you'd grown your theological chops and you're helping me n navigate how mm -hmm. to write content that would bridge and 
mm-hmm. transcend denominational lines and theological lines. Um, but I remember telling my brother something about you, my brother Kev, mm-hmm. and uh, he worked with you at A&W yeah. before you'd given your life to the Lord. So he was like, not confused because he's seen people's lives change before, but he's like, it's so weird that you're, you're, Chris is helping you with that because I just remember him hung over or drunk at A&W. <laughs> oh yeah. It was, I was a gong show, man. Like my life was not in, I was not on a good trajectory. Yeah. Um, and I remember there was a few Christians that worked at A&W with us and I knew enough of, you know, growing up in the church, enough of the buttons to push. Yeah. And so I was like a, you a were antagonist. disturber of the peace, yeah. you know, in that space. Um, I love so, that. Yeah, I love wild. that. Um, so you, at Sea Rock, you did this this pastor's gathering. You did this session, preaching on a post Christian culture, and you gave five thoughts, or pre- preaching in a post Christian culture. You have five thoughts. Can you define those terms for us? Like when when we say something, and anytime you sum up the Canadian landscape, mm-hmm. or you say something as broad brushstroke as a post Christian culture, like obviously it's a a very broad category, <laughs> but what, what did you mean by that? Or what does it mean to the conversation of preaching when we define it in those terms? Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel that challenge. I don't even like to define the Vancouver landscape. Well, with Vancouver, it's interesting because you say post-Christian, that's true in one sense, but yeah. like a lot of Vancouver's in some ways never Christian, but then mm-hmm. there's immigration where you've got this a very high percentage of religious engagement. So you're like, to call Vancouver even post-Christian isn't a fair. Yeah, it's like a unique confluence of things. And so all these statements need to be taken with a grain of salt. What I meant is that we live in a day that's kind of, we live in a culture that's been very influenced by a Christian heritage. And in some ways we're still living off some of the fruits of Christendom in our values, while at the same time being in pretty bitter reaction against our Christian past. Yeah. And so C.S. Lewis has this great analogy that I think highlights the challenge of communicating in our day uh, scripture and why it's a challenge. He goes, there's a big difference between trying to convince a newly engaged couple about the beauties and benefits of marriage, or even a couple that's dating. Uh, and then trying to convince a bitterly divorced couple about the beauties and benefits of marriage. Hmm. Trying to convince the bitterly divorced couple of the beauties and benefits of marriage is a harder job than the yeah. dewy-eyed, you know, in love couple. Does C.S. Lewis analogy, maybe I have, I've had it wrong. Does he say children of divorce or does he say divorced? I don't, I don't know. Like I've read C.S. Lewis so much. Because I, I might have like just um You might be with, improving his analogy. It's impossible to improve, but I, I guess maybe I heard somebody describe it, maybe paraphrasing or mm. working with Lewis analogy of like telling ch- children who experience bitter divorce how good marriage is. Mm. And what I liked about that, whoever made that addition, or maybe that is C.S. Lewis's work, is like in some ways, if you're preaching to anyone between the age of 50 and under in some ways in a city like Vancouver, probably a lot of Canada, they're children of divorce, metaphorically speaking, children of the fallout mm-hmm. um, of a version of Christendom that influenced the culture. Right. And so uh, I like that a lot, whether it's his original Lewis illustration or not. Or not. How, it's like, it's like Michael Scott it, it in the office. Better. It's like C.S. Lewis quote, Jason Ballard. <laughs> exactly. You miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Wayne, Wayne Gretzky, Gretzky, Michael Scott. Scott. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I like that a lot. Another way to say it that I think might be familiar to some people listening is, you know, we're no longer just trying to say, you know, is this true or is this relevant? We're now facing the issue of, is this even good for the world? Yeah. Do I even believe that Christianity is a source of good Mm. in the world? Yeah. The apologetic needle has moved Mm -hmm. for a long time. The question was like, is it true? Is it true? Is true? Responding to the new atheists or like trying to uh, make a case for the you know, intellectual credibility of Christianity. Mm-hmm. It was it was the question like, fa- can faith and science coexist? Right. And those are important questions mm-hmm. still. However, it's not the primary question culturally being asked. Yeah. And or that's it, rooted, I think, in our story and the way that, um, you know, all the research on Gen Z, but it applies to millennials and Gen Xers. And I think broadly speaking, our culture is like, it's is this any good? Mm-hmm. Because... So much has been said about institutions, including Christianity, projecting harm into the world. Yeah. So then it's a question of like, is it beautiful and good? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that is obviously a pretty significant hurdle, or it's an additional hurdle yeah. that we're facing that makes it more challenging. And so if this is the culture we're speaking into, and obviously we put a huge asterisk on that because there's so many subtleties and mm-hmm. nuances within that, and every story is so unique. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I mean, I, I think we have a blend of people, scholars analyze like pre-Christian, Christendom, post-Christian uh, as like distinct categories. I really think we have all of those blended together yeah. in a city like Vancouver. And I think when I look at, and we will eventually get to at least one of these five points, <laughs> when I look at them, I, I don't think these are exclusive to the post-Christian content, yeah. context. I think this is these are transcending uh, principles and thoughts. But I think it's helpful for us to illustrate them and place them within the context that we're all feeling. We're f- mm-hmm. And I wonder, people who are listening, if you've been pastoring for a couple of decades, if you have felt the shift, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, for some people, especially if you're under 30, this might feel like all you've known in terms of what audience you're communicating to. But if you've been preaching for decades, you might have felt the shift of baseline assumptions, mm-hmm. of hostility towards some of the ideas, and it's demanded new... Um, new efforts and new uh, approaches to bring obviously the timeless truths that are unchanging Mm -hmm. to our audience. Um, You did five. Yeah. I want to break your order. One thing that you said, your second point, when you gave five thoughts for preaching in a post-Christian culture is your second point was worry less about relevancy. I thought that's so interesting because Mm. um, what I consistently feel like is the first point is understand the culture, which I think is important. And we can talk more about that in a bit and then like do the work to contextualize. But then you said focus less or worry less about relevancy. What did you Mm -hmm. mean by that? Yeah. I mean, what I was trying to get at is perhaps the focus on relevancy or maybe even the obsession with relevancy, uh, maybe a fallacy or a never ending game of catch up. Uh, because trends come and go yeah. and to be in touch today is to be out of touch tomorrow. So there's a famous saying, like, uh, you know, you wed yourself to the spirit of this age, you'll be a widow in the next one. And I think the only way to be always up to date and relevant is to be studying the humanities right now in university, which very few 
preachers are yeah. currently. And I think there's also this crushing pressure and weight that comes yeah, on you that. to know, I need to understand post-modernity and applied post-modernity and critical theory and intersectionality and all these buzzwords. Yeah, and, that, and that's crushing. just the philosophical worldview, not to exactly. mention the cultural reference points, who's in vogue right now, um, what's popular, all those things. It is overwhelming. Yeah. And so I think what I was trying to say there is like, worry about the right kind of relevancy um, and ask yourself, like, what are the constants? Like, what are the essential parts of our human makeup that remain relatively stable and constant across time periods and cultures? Those exist. That's why you can read Augustine, or right now I'm rereading Pascal's Pensées. I said it with an accent. Uh, and they're, they feel relevant, even mm. though totally different time period, different culture. Um, and so it's like, what are the longings and the fears and the, the hopes and the dreams of the human heart that remain relatively stable and constant across time periods, and then learn how to speak the gospel or the truth of scripture into those realities. Love, loss, grief, anger, lust, these things that we all find in mm. our heart, whether we like Billie Eilish or the Beatles or whatever trend we're chasing or whatever we've studied in academia, whatever kind of ideology we're a part of, there are still underneath it all these constants that we're familiar with in our own heart and can preach the gospel to in our own heart and then need to continually preach the gospel to in the hearts of our hearers. Yeah. And I think that's the right kind of relevancy. And so trends, academic or otherwise, I pay attention to them, but their main value for me is to illustrate the perennial realities. Yes that remain stable. Yeah. And so it's like that way you're always relevant in the right kind of way. Yeah, I think what I found so liberating about this, like, like first of all, it's not saying don't do the work. So I'll just give a very specific illustration. Like one of the perennial issues that every human faces is loss, mm -hmm. death and loss. And uh, you, I think you recommended uh, Wolsterstorff. I think I'm not- Yeah, Lament for a Son. Lament for a Son. Yeah. And, you know, or Lewis, uh, what's his one on grief? Surprise. Uh, yes. uh, uh, a grief observed. A grief observed. And um, to, to read those books, to ask the question, how did they speak to loss and grief? And to work out, how can I speak to the human heart? And how does the gospel intersect that? And put my time into that. That's not going to expire next year, next mm -hmm. decade. That's an investment in my whole life as a preacher. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, and I think- it'll allow you, sorry. Yeah, no, go for it. It'll allow you to speak to the 80-year-old and the 23-year-old. At the same time. At the same time. Yeah. And so I, I think I love that, like, seek to be re relevant in the right issues. And I think about this with youth culture, like, and, and I want to be really, really clear. Um, I do really think- research is important and if 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 barna releases a, a study it's worth reading and mm -hmm. citing those reports and so there's a lot of research about gen z now about gen alpha we do all of that yeah and that's great but the thing that's never changed about high school students is their desire to find purpose mm -hmm. meaning who am i am i loved am i wanted mm -hmm. and so one of the things i see is an angst is we need to keep up with all the data in order to know how to speak to the next generation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like, hey, to some degree, pulse with the data. 
mm-hmm. listen to what's happening, be aware of what's happening in the news or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. but give yourself to the steady of the deeper longings because that investment will pay off dividends over time. Am I hearing that right? Yeah, and it's also, we're, we're so limited in our energy and in our time and, and communicating is very hard, especially communicating clearly and compellingly. And so given our limitedness, given uh, how many different things pull our energy in different ways, I want to put energy towards how do I speak very compellingly to loss yeah. from a Christian worldview and perspective? How do I speak very compellingly to the longing for connection yeah. or to the pain of betrayal? Or to, how does the gospel intersect with those realities and how can I communicate that yeah. powerfully and perfectly? you know, persuasively. Yeah. That's real work. Uh, and if it means I can't be up to date on the latest academic trends, so be it. Yeah. I don't think it'll make me a less effective communicator. Yeah. I think what's compelling about that as well is if you've done the work to understand the deeper perennial issues of the human heart and longings, and then when you do hear a pop culture reference or a study or whatever, you can spot its effectiveness more mm-hmm. concretely because mm-hmm. you know how it taps into a deeper argument mm-hmm. or a, um, a deeper response opposed to like just being caught up kind of in the winds of whatever's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's like one of the things that I, that I shared. I also think that the right kind of relevancy will cause you to avoid heresy. Mm. <laughs> uh in a sense, because... And is that important as a preacher to avoid heresy? Would you say... I would prefer it if the next generation of preachers avoided heresy and stayed within the boundaries of historic Christianity. I remember early on when I was preaching and I hadn't had... Didn't, like, go to Bible college. I know steady. I, I was given opportunities way too young. Yeah. And I was just like, don't be, don't be a heretic. Like, in my head, it was like, was I a heretic? Am I a heretic? It was my biggest concern. And I think early on, I probably did say some things that were pretty... Well, we'll all say things that are wrong. I think John Calvin said that no theologian can be more than 70% right. But I don't know if that was part of his 70 or his 30. Right. right? So, so, But I like at least some humility there to yeah. say, we're going to say things that are incorrect or need to be nuanced. Or, but to try to stay within the bounds of historic and Christian thankfully, orthodoxy. there's people in our congregations that will walk up to us right afterwards yeah. and tell us where we got it wrong. What a what gift. A, what a gift to turn your critics into coaches yeah. on the spot. Wow. I see what you real there. humility. I think I interrupted you. What were you saying? Well, I'm, I'm just saying like there, the most at the core of a lot of like heterodoxy or like heresy was a desire for relevancy. Hmm. The culture had changed. And so let's update the message to meet the needs of the culture not proper contextualization that the Apostle Paul does when speaking on Mars Hill or to the Bereans, different approaches. Bereans know the Bible, speaks from the Bible. Mars Hill, they know Greek poets, he quotes Greek poets, but he talks about Jesus and the resurrection and you know the basics of a Christian worldview. That's appropriate contextualization, but like heresy is an over-contextualization. Mm. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna bend too far in the direction of culture in order to be relevant. Yeah. I think the impulse is evangelistic early on, but the problem is we turn into a parrot of culture instead of a prophet to culture. Wow. And um, for me, it's like that the wrong kind of relevancy can end up uh, inverting Jesus's parable of the soils, 
where he talks about like, there's the message, which is the seed, the message of the kingdom. And it goes into four different soils with four different results. And in that parable, the problem is the soil, Hmm. right? The seed's constant and the same. The problem is the soil. And instead of praying that God would change the soil of the human heart to fit the seed and allow the seed to be fruitful, we change the seed to fit the soil Hmm. and the harvest of some gets exchanged for the harvest of none. And we literally subvert uh, the meaning of Jesus's parable in this pursuit of like hyper-relevancy and contextualization. Mm. Um, so that's why I think the right kind of relevancy matters and how has the historic church and the faithful exegeting and explaining of scriptures, you know, sp- spoken to these longings mm. that are perennial. I, I want to move on to, I think the first point that you made, which is it contrasts appropriately, like the, the first thought that you gave to this audience on preaching in a post-Christian culture was building what you call micro-apologetics into your sermons. And so mm-hmm. I think this is a, a good counterbalance, you know, to, in the sense of like, hey, there is an opportunity to speak directly into yeah. some of the contemporary issues. To be clear, the micro-apologetics was actually your phrase and idea. If you want proprietary rights to that phrase. I don't, people don't know well, that just, we talk a lot about preaching and very influence each other a lot. I think... Let's see how people respond yeah, to this if, point and we'll decide if this whether it gets a lot of traction, then you will I'll gladly take the cred. Okay. Um, but up until this point, it's been my pleasure <laughs> to see credit applied to you. Right. Yeah. Uh I mean, this is for me, like apologetics does mean to like speak in defense of the faith or respond to objections. And when people hear it, they think I need to know arguments for God's existence or how to respond to evil and suffering, how to do the faith science thing you mentioned. That's not entirely what I'm talking about. There is time and space for that. I'm more talking about looking for moments in a message to speak to the skeptic and the non-believer or to address the cultural issues in our day that are shared by the believer and the unbeliever. Yeah. Um, and to acknowledge the reality of those questions in the congregation. Yeah. Um, because I think most of us want to have people exploring Christianity in our con- congregations. You yeah. know, we want the seekers and skeptics to come. And so uh, if we never speak to them, they won't. Yeah. Um, and I think the value of that is you're also training your people how to respond to objections in real time. Um, but for me, it's, it's, it's pretty multifaceted. Like think of the, the word repentance. Yeah. So this is an example of like what I'd call a mini apologetic in a sermon. The word repentance sounds like a, a, a religious word. It sounds like maybe a negative word, you know, repent, turn or burn. That might be in people's consciousness yeah. when they hear the word repent. But repentance is really just a change of thinking that leads to a change of living. And so if I'm if I'm wanting to speak to a wider crowd, I say, hey, repentance sounds like a really religious word, but it's actually something we're all doing. Mm. So establishing common ground. We all, new information comes to us, we change our mind, and sometimes we change our lifestyle on the basis of that new information. Well, that's a version of repentance. And then I say, and it's also really beautiful. 
because the only way we really grow as human beings is to practice a lifestyle of repentance. So now I've brought everyone in. Yeah. And then I would say, when Jesus says repent, he's saying, turn from sin that destroys our lives to him and the abundant life he promises. Lay down your agenda and pick up his agenda for your life. That's a that's like a micro-apologetic in a message. Like it's quick. You're not trying to lay out like a 20 minute argument. You're just yeah. trying to go, hey, on my way to the primary thing I'm teaching, maybe the text brings up repentance. I want to acknowledge some preconceived ideas. Yes. Acknowledge an awareness of some counter arguments. I, I think one time recently, like you, you do this a lot. I mean, this is probably your part of your unique wiring, but I think it's mm. something that is reproducible. Yeah. Um, you know, we were, whether it was a text or a thematic message on evangelism, you took time to acknowledge that there is a critique of evangelism as inherently evil and wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, you did quick work with it. You um, subverted some counter arguments, you invited people in. But what I appreciate about it, and you can speak to it more, is it's not just effective for the someone who's not a follower of Jesus in the room. Mm-hmm. I think why it's so impactful for me to hear it and receive it and try to do that in my own preaching is I think we underestimate the degree to which followers of Jesus have been evangelized themselves or won over Mm -hmm. to a secular worldview. And so we've been told so much subversively, indirectly and directly that any propagation of the gospel is inherently negative. There's Mm -hmm. been research that supports this. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just speaking to the non-Christian in the room and saying, hey, this isn't as bad as you think, this is loving. Like, check this out. Like, if you believe something deeply and could help people, Mm -hmm. why would you hold it to yourself? It's actually speaking to the Christian in the room who have been won over by a secular narrative Mm -hmm. that evangelism inherently evil because of colonialism or whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. and trying to win them over to a more holistic, more vibrant view of it. Yeah. And that's because the people in our churches have been so evangelized by culture yeah, and to various degrees converted and formed. And so a micro-apologetic around evangelism is, is a counter-formation piece. Yeah. And it's not just about the skeptic uh, who's not a follower of Jesus. It's about the skeptic who is a follower of Jesus and is growing in their understanding of Christ's lordship and a Christian worldview. And that's why, like... It's the same thing with the gospels. Like, I want to preach the gospel every week. Yeah. Not for just for the unbeliever, but for the believer. Yeah. Who needs to hear it again and again and flesh it out in all areas of your life. It's the same with these micro apologetics. Um, and so it's like you're helping them sort through the narratives they're swimming in. Yeah. When you do a micro apologetic, you're helping them better appreciate scripture and its power and relevancy. You're helping them form a more biblical worldview on these types of issues. And I just think we can't, like there's no version where you can assume, especially if you have a younger church, that the people in your pews, even the ones who seem on fire, have a biblical sex ethic. So, or that they even think that a biblical sex ethic is good. Exactly. That's part, they, they've been converted to think maybe it's bad or I'm not sure. Restrictive, repressive, at least dangerous and abusive at worst. So you literally can't teach on that without doing an apologetic for the believers in your church. Yeah. 
And so for me, this is a crucial piece of, of preaching in uh, a post-Christian context. And it's not just about the classic apologetic stuff that we think when we hear that word. It's about looking for moments all the time to subvert narratives, to help people understand what these words mean, how they apply, how they could be beautiful yeah. and good. I think sometimes it's the most simple way to do it is just by asking good questions. Mm-hmm. You know, um, one thing I've learned from you and I find like it's a simple, I think I think it's a micro-apologetic. I'm always trying, whenever we're dealing with, I mean, a New Testament epistle, I'm trying to raise the question like, this is a, I'm trying to raise the idea, hey, this is a letter being written to young Christians in the first century and all the pressures of the religious and government establishments trying mm-hmm. to shut this thing down. And historians still marvel at how Christianity survived the first, second, third century. Mm-hmm. And so here we are, whether you're Christian or not, mm-hmm. able to get a window into this first century text. And all I'm doing in that moment is just raising a question that says, oh, this isn't just religious jargon. Mm-hmm. It's not just like some, I'm trying to place it within the context of something that raises questions for people mm-hmm. that maybe help hold them into it and mm-hmm. not uh, and subvert some of the assumptions of irrelevance yeah. or whatever it might be. Well, here's what I think you do really, really well is it's it's not just what you say, it's how you say what you say mm. and the tone you adopt while communicating. So like, I think we we don't just disciple people from the pulpit by, which is only one part of the journey of, of discipleship, right? But we don't just disciple people by what we say, but by how we say what we say, mm. which is why mean preaching will breed mean people. Right. And... I think we need to pay attention to to our tone and you always adopt a tone of curiosity. You're appropriately suggestive in your style of communication. You invite people in to the journey. Look at this marvel at this. You just did it there with the birth of the the early church. And I think it builds bridges to Christians and non-Christians in our day. Um, Before we leave this point, I'd love to because I don't want this to feel like a burden, you know. Um, I love to just explore some different examples. I think what even as you talked about sexual ethics, you know, mm. um, you, I think one simple way when we approach the Christian sexual ethic is to just establish like sexuality is such a big part of what it means to be human. I mean, we all wrestle with it. Mm-hmm. To identify how it drives marketing and our day-to-day lives. It's a huge part of our lives. And so we need an ethic on this. Mm-hmm. Like we, it's too important not to have an ethic. And there are so many opinions, but which ones bring life? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just to even raise that question and that posture goes, hey, like I wanna invite you to even consider an ethic. And here we have an ethic that's survived for thousands of years. Um, and then also to, to acknowledge that's been hijacked and often taken advantage of mm-hmm. and diluted. But what we have in scripture is a broad nuanced ethic, which we're, and we're desperate for one. So I want to invite you, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, to look at this invitation to a view of, of, of a Christian view of sexuality and to mm-hmm. ask the questions of it. Yeah. A good example of doing that would be like, we all, like you said, believe sexuality is deeply important, a part of who we are as human beings. And because of that, we all have boundaries around sexuality. Yeah, everyone example, has boundaries. We believe in consent. And the idea of consent was really introduced into the Greco-Roman world through Christianity. And so it's like... All of a sudden now you've just planted like a question or a thought 
that broadens people's ability to engage shows that you're aware of some of the critiques that people mm -hmm. walk into the room with. So it's like consent is good. Consent is about boundaries. Therefore, boundaries are good. Now, what's interesting about the Christian perspective on sexuality is it would draw boundaries tighter than our culture might. And let's look at why. And let's give it a hearing. Let's, let's allow ourselves to be vulnerable to the counter argument. At the very least, as a secular person, it will cause you to grow in empathy and understanding for 2 billion people in the world who hold to this sex ethic. Yeah. That's a benefit to you. Yeah. Um, and so you've brought them in and yeah. you've, um, at that point, won yourself an initial hearing. Yeah. You're, it's not like you're not done and dust on every issue. Yeah. And you're going to, people are going to get offended. Let's face it. Right. Like you're not. What are some other examples uh, maybe recently that you've incorporated or, or incorporated into your preaching that quick micro apologetics that you feel like were important? I remember I was doing uh, John chapter nine, where Jesus heals the man born blind. And I did some stuff around a theology of suffering there, um, a helpful and unhelpful one. But there's a reality in that text where Jesus is like fighting with the Pharisees. They're in a real conflict. And um, throughout the gospel of John, Jesus is having conf conflict with the Jewish leaders. And at that moment in culture, I remember like uh, there was a lot about anti-Semitism, uh, like because of Kanye and then yeah. like uh, Chappelle was talking about Kanye on Saturday Night Live and there, that was all happening. And so as a way into point two of that message, which was about like the conflict Jesus had with the Pharisees, I just said something like this. Um, here's one thing people sometimes struggle with when it comes to the gospels in church history, there's this tragic streak of anti-Semitism, and it's hard not to read the gospels through that historic lens. You know, when you read about this conflict with sometimes it says the Jews, right? And so that can be very triggering given that history. And so it's good to remember that Jesus is Jewish and John is Jewish. And what is happening in the Gospels is a well-established tradition in Judaism of prophetic critique from within. And here there's a conflict between the Jewish rabbi Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. And so let me explain why there's an in-house debate. And so it's just an introduction into point two, but it's a micro-apologetic. Yeah. Um, it helps people not read anti-Semitism into the text and acknowledges the tragic ways in which that has happened and here's why it shouldn't happen. Mm. And it clears away some of the intellectual or emotional blockage yeah. that would prevent people from giving the story a fair hearing. I almost hearing. see it like fog. Yeah. Like there's this fog, if you, if, if we're, for people to see the message or see the truth, there's this fog. Or mm. if you use like a hearing metaphor, if like for them to hear the message, there's like, there's white noise or sitting, there's like noise distracting. Mm -hmm. And sometimes these don't like, solve the issue fully, but they help clear some of the noise for a moment so they can hear the core of what's happening I think here. that's all like apologetics, especially these micro apologetics, that's all it's ever doing. It's like there is, because of our cultural moment, uh, rubble and debris that would block someone's path to giving the gospel a fair hearing. So all apologetics does is kind of remove some of the rubble just to allow the gospel or the story in that example, get a fair hearing mm. and help people get past 
it so they can actually give it a, a fair hearing. Hmm. Um, that's all I think apologetics ever does, really. Um, it doesn't, I don't think arguments are the primary reason why people come to faith. Hmm. One of the other points that you made on preaching in a post-Christian culture is understanding that good news trumps good advice. Hmm. Can you tell me what you meant by that? Yeah, I think I can talk about that pretty quickly. Um, preaching for me is not about life hacks or, you know. 10 top tips to. 10 top tips to like a, a great marriage. Summer of your life. Yeah. The best, the best summer of your life. The best summer of your life ever. 10 top tips on how to vacation well. Yeah. 10 top tips on how to integrate back into work. After 14 good... leadership principles from the life of Moses. Yeah. <laughs> 14. It's a lot of. <laughs> You can do it though. You can do it. I just mean this, like we have good news to proclaim about what God has done through Jesus by the spirit, what God is doing through Jesus by the spirit, renewing people one day, renewing all of creation, not just a good plan for your life, but a good plan for all of creation. It's cosmic in its scope, this good news. Uh, it is, I think, the best story ever told. It's the story the human heart was made to fit into. Hmm. And that's the primary thrust of our preaching. Now, the reason I said good news trumps good advice is because good advice appeals to the will. Good news invites our worship and our will follows our worship. Hmm. So if we're always preaching to people's will, we're preaching downstream of their lives. If we're always preaching to their will, um, it'll be self-defeating if we're not dislodging the false gods in their heart yeah. and their disordered loves. And so it's like what people need then is the, I think a Puritan called it like the expulsive power of a new affection, this, this deep love and treasuring of Jesus in response to what he's done for you yeah. that starts to over time reorder your loves and your will follows your worship. Your worship doesn't follow your will, I think. And so that's why we preach good news first good advice is always secondary. I think, can you give it, can you help me give an example? Cause I think, I think sometimes it happens. We can find ourselves preaching good advice in an effort to connect the dots in an effort to make good application. Mm -hmm. um, can you give me an example of what that looks like? Cause I, I don't think, yeah, what that looks like to prioritize the pro like in our preaching, even maybe it's even how we posture ourselves in our preparation. I'd just love to hear a little bit more about like, mm -hmm. what does that look like for us to take that into our preparation this week? Yeah. Well, I think that I'm always looking for the good news in a text, whether it's right there on the surface um, or whether it's a text, like a narrative text that might expose the need for good news hmm. because it puts us face to face with say human depravity. And by good news, sin. do you mean declaring the good news of Jesus, who God is and what he's done yeah. and is doing? Yeah. His finished work through Jesus on the cross on our behalf, uh, by grace, we're saved. This is not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. All of our lives and all of our ethics are a response to the fact that he loved us first, which is I think why Paul in a lot of his epistles goes first half, all good news, what God's done through Jesus yeah. by his spirit, second half is ethics because ethics flows mm -hmm. in response. And if you preach to the will over, you know, the worship that 
the good news invokes, you reverse the order. Hmm. And I don't think that's how the human heart's designed. Um, yeah. And and I also think Keller's thing, this is I, a Keller thing for sure. Like he talks about this, but if you preach primarily to the will, you'll end up with moralism. Hmm. And you'll end up either with pride when people are performing well or despair when they feel like they're failing. Right. And so they'll they'll swing between those two realities, which isn't good for anyone, including the person. Yeah. Uh, whereas good news invites this humble confidence. As Keller says, you know, humble because we were sinful enough, Jesus had to die, confident because he loved us enough, he was willing to do so. And then to living out of that place hmm. of humble response to the love of God given hmm. to us in Jesus, poured into our hearts by the Spirit. I think one of the questions that we can ask ourselves then as we prepare, like looking at our notes or manuscript is like, am I, you know, boldly proclaiming what Christ has done mm -hmm. and who God is um, in this manuscript? Or if I walk away from the pulpit, like, did I lift him up and proclaim mm -hmm. who he is? And there's just been this shift for me. Cause I think on one level, I always wanted to be or intentionally trying to, give good news, not just good advice. Mm -hmm. But something shifted when I realized that there's power in, at some point in the message, just proclaiming, this is who God is. Mm -hmm. This is what he has done. And not following that with a, so that means we have to. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, that that sort of train of thought is appropriate yeah. often. But are there moments, and are we acknowledging just how powerful it is to say like, this is the God who created the world. Mm -hmm who's redeeming the world mm -hmm. and to let that rest on people, to create on wonder in people and believe that the spirit kind of couples with that yeah. proclamation and actually grabs holds of people's worship. Yes. Yeah, so this is like one of the theological presuppositions at work here is like when I lift Jesus up, not only did he himself promise that when he's lifted up, he would draw people to himself. The presupposition is the Holy Spirit loves to shine a spotlight on Jesus. So when I lift Jesus up, I please the Holy Spirit. Mm. The Holy Spirit shines a spotlight on Jesus. And when people fall in love with Jesus or start to treasure Jesus above all else, yeah. now they're willing to hear what Jesus says mm. about a sex ethic, what Jesus says about money. To just talk about money or a sex ethic without to people who aren't in love with Jesus and wanting to go, I, I trust you. I want to hear what you say about my life is really a huge uphill battle. Mm. I think it, when people fall in love with Jesus, because you're preaching people up into his beauty and sufficiency, it tilts the slope. Mm. Instead of uphill, now it's either even, or maybe even there's a snowballing effect. Well, then I want to hear what Jesus says about everything else. If he's Lord, God, and King, mm. and if I love him and he's my treasure, then it works itself out in all the other areas of my life. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of what I'm, what I'm thinking there. One of the other things that you shared was this idea of you're preaching not just for information transfer, but for, I think the words was like catalytic encounter. This is another one that's like ours, not just mine. I think we've definitely talked about this before. Yeah, I mean, that's just Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5, I think. He said, you search the scriptures diligently because in them you think you have life, yet you refuse to come to me to receive life. They memorized huge parts of the Torah. Mm. They know the Bible 
the Old Testament, the Torah, better than we do. And Jesus goes, yet you refuse to come to me. Yeah. And so I just don't want to preach information transfer. I want to preach for an encounter with the risen Christ hmm. for some of the reasons we just talked about. That's what's ultimately transformative. Uh, Jesus is the word within the word. And I want people to encounter. So what does that look the, like as you're preparing a talk? You've been assigned a text and you're going, hey, I'm not just trying to get them. Like, I, I know in your heart, you're like, I want them to understand this one. They'd be equipped to mm -hmm. read Philippians more effectively or mm -hmm. understand this particular passage of scripture. But what does that look like for you at some point in your preparation and then your delivery to go, I'm not just hoping people have more information about this text, but I want to what? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question because it it goes in so many directions for me. Mm. Like I, you know, I think it was Chesterton who made this point because people will like, I don't remember a lot of sermons, you know. Um, and he said, well, you don't remember every meal your mom made you, but each one nourished you. And I sometimes add or gave you food poisoning because sermons could do that as well. But there's this idea which I'm not too stressed that people memorize yeah. what I say or every piece of content I delivered. I want them though to have a sense of the beauty and worth of Jesus at the very least mm. coming out of this talk. So I'm gonna make sure I'm lifting him up. Mm. Uh, at some point in the message. Um, it also is meant for me, I mean, even when we think about liturgy and how we respond to the preached word at our church, yeah. to have space for prayer ministry, to do communion every week, to have real time for people to respond to the preached word and encounter the risen Christ by the spirit. And I really do feel like a sermon um, is maybe a monologue, mm. uh, but it's meant to create or be a catalyst for a dialogue between the hearer and the Lord and the hearer and the community. And we've got small groups. There's other ways people can engage throughout the week. But before you leave the space of this congregational gathering, let's give time mm. for people to encounter and at least begin that conversation with Jesus and maybe invite another believer in through prayer ministry. Mm. Um, that So my mind goes in that direction as well. Um, but for me, it partly acts as like a response to this idea. I need one idea and I need to repeat that idea 11 times so that people leave, they have that one idea. That to me doesn't feel wrong. It doesn't feel like a bad idea, but it feels to me like the point of that is information transfer, which is actually a secondary goal for me yeah. under encounter. If you can do both, that's great. Like yeah, if, if and you I think walk we away do. with that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's not always an either or. It's just sometimes easier to communicate like yeah. a hierarchy of values with an either or. Yes. Um, so, but that's kind of the idea. Yeah. Um, and I also was like protecting my heart. This is this is a funny thing to say, but like from the person's like, I don't remember sermons. Mm. I remember being a youth pastor, kids would always say that, then I'd hear them repeat things yeah. that I taught them. Uh, and I also think, man, if if I apply what I remember from, like if I, if I remember 5% of the sermons I've heard and applied those five, the 5% of that, 
my life is utterly tra- changed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I know. I don't know if this point's intended to do that, but I do think in a world that's not just asking, is this true, but is it good and beautiful for the sermon to lead people to a place of meeting with Jesus, mm-hmm. to, for it to lead the way to a response of prayer or reflection of, or encounter with the presence of God. I think again and again, as I'm watching people who don't know the Lord come to know him here mm-hmm. in this city. Yeah. Like one story that really impacts me recently was this, you probably remember it as well, like woman who took alpha, I think she was, would articulate her position before alpha as an atheist or mm-hmm. she wasn't young. She's been around for a while and uh, her, like what she was enjoy the conversation. She's really impacted by like textual criticism and like mm-hmm. the validity of the, that, like how valid the texts of the gospels are. And mm-hmm. so she's having this intellectual journey that's really fruitful and edifying, but then she actually receives prayer ministry from somebody um, at yeah, Alpha, yeah. who who used like a spiritual gift to give some insight uh, into her life, word or, yeah. yeah, and it was like that combination of both that kind mm-hmm. of moved her to take a step of trusting in Jesus with her life, and now she's a follower mm-hmm. of Jesus. And I love that because obviously it's not an either or. She's really impacted by yeah. the intellectual journey, the information, but it was like an actual encounter with the presence of God. In this case, through somebody taking a step of ministry, spiritual gifts being used, and I think that to have that in mind in our preaching that we want to not just transfer information, but actually set the stage for encounter, whether it's within the context of the proclaimed word yes. or what follows in the life of the church, I think is important. Yeah. It is in a way giving expression to the value of word and spirit. Yeah. Uh, this one, I think. I'm also a little sensitive because obviously people can't see us, but I have a juice box and I'm wondering if it's picking up it on the audio. Yeah, maybe as you're sipping the juice box. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen an adult man in some time drink from a juice box. So yeah, it's what they had in the that. fridge. I've been appreciating and I'm at that. The bot- at the bottom, it gets a little loud. We have one more point, mm-hmm. but I want to take a detour really quick Yeah, and ask this question. One of the things that you're doing is engaging emerging preachers, people, mm-hmm. a lot of them are younger, but not all of them are, who want to grow in preaching. Some of them are on staff at the church. Some of them are lay leaders, not on staff at mm-hmm. the church who want to grow in preaching and you've got a cohort. And I'm just curious, what do you see as some of the, um, um, what are the questions or areas of growth you feel that are coming up most for preachers who are early on their journey? Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of things I, I see. Um, what, what I, what's encouraging is I'm seeing a real desire to be faithful to the text I'm seeing a real commitment to the word and a desire to communicate it effectively. Tendencies I'm seeing, uh, and also there's like a Christocentricity that I like, at least the preachers that I'm working with, a desire to like proclaim good news like we talked about. Um, one of the the challenges, um, there's of course the challenge of knowing how to speak to a diverse room and growing in like the micro apologetic piece. Cause that's really a muscle you work out. Yeah. And this is all the stuff we're talking about. It's a five, 10 year, this is a long journey of yeah. growing as a communicator. Um, so don't feel if you're listening, don't take any weird weight on. This mm-hmm. is like been doing this for a lot of years. Um, so there is that, but structure is very hard. Hmm. I like how to structure a talk uh, in a way that's faithful to the text, but engaging for the hearer. A lot of work I'm doing in 
you know, the lives of preachers who are manuscripting their talks is around structure. Mm. Uh, there's a tendency to to over explain or introduce ideas that you actually don't have time to explain and mm. it ends up being a distraction for your hearer. I'm trying to do too much. It's so hard. It's like they say this to writers, you know, kill your darlings. You have to mm. cut out pieces of writing that you really like or even might feel critical to you in the moment. To be a good communicator and to teach well, you have to do that as well. And so that's hard for young preachers to do or know what to cut. Hmm. Okay, number five. We get we're gonna get all through all five. Which are is we? amazing? Yeah. Here we are. This, that time. this is the the fifth and last point you made on this session. I just really appreciate you walking us through this. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing you said to this room full of pastors about preaching in a post-Christian culture is not preaching to save one's soul. Yeah, I think this is another like killerism that I learned from him. He had a phrase, and I think he picked this up from someone else, um, where it was like, if you preach to save your soul on Sunday, you'll die every Monday. Hmm. Um, I'm like, oh, if you preach to save your soul on Sunday, God will have to resurrect you on Monday. The idea, though, was like, don't preach to get what Jesus has already given, Hmm. which is validation and affirmation and love. Yeah. Um, don't do that. It's crushing. It's crushing. And for me, preaching feels so like insecure. Yeah. Like, you know, I always joke about how, uh, I'll preach and my wife will be there and I'll be like, what did you think? And she'll be like, it was good. And I'll be like, just good. Just good. That's all you have to say. <laughs> and then she'll go, I'm like, I'm just sweating. I poured myself out. I was like, this is a chunk of my week, just good. And she'll be like, it's powerful. And I'll be like, yeah, but how powerful? <laughs> I'm like, it's like the, almost like the need for validation is infinite. And the most important human voice in my life isn't enough Yeah, to assure me I've done well. And so I'm like, I can't just go to the father and get on my knees for anointing before I preach. I have to go to the Father and get on my knees after I preach, at least metaphorically, not for anointing, but for affirmation. Yeah. And the question I need to ask myself is not, was it good, but was I faithful? Yeah. And then leave the results to the Lord and to not preach to get from Jesus what he's already given, mm-hmm. coming back to that place of beloved, uh, to that place of child of God, to that place of like, the Lord will do what the Lord will do of any message I communicate yeah. and the results are really up to him and not taking myself too seriously, yeah. um, but taking the Lord seriously. Uh, that's kind of what I meant. Uh, and it has broader application, man. Like I remember when I, earlier this year, I broke my elbow in two places and I spent a lot of time like lying down yeah. on painkillers. You remember? Oh yeah. And I was watching comedians in cars getting coffee with Jerry Seinfeld. He's talking to Cedric the Entertainer. And Cedric the Entertainer says to him, you know, it was a joke, and it's not even a very good joke, but he goes, dictators, comedians, preachers all have something in common, standing in front of crowds of people trying to convince the world we're necessary. And I laughed. And then I thought, oh, that's actually what's killing pastors. Up there, communicating, serving, paying no attention to boundaries, overextending ourselves to convince people that were necessary. 
and that w- what we contribute is valuable. Yeah, that we're valuable. And it's just crushing. Yeah, it's too much. And so to just preach the gospel uh, to our own hearts yeah. before we ever preach it to anyone else. And um, if, if preaching isn't actually helping me love Jesus more and become more like Jesus over the years, I really hope I stop doing it. Um, because that's an interesting question to ask a self-reflection. At least that's when I got to ask myself is, is my writing delivering Mm -hmm. these sermons? Is it making me love Jesus and his word more, the church more, or is it doing the opposite? And if, if it's doing the opposite or if it's not doing that, then maybe there's something in me that's, needing preaching to do something for me that it's not meant to do. Yeah. And it is courageous to just pause and acknowledge like, of course we want to be liked. Mm-hmm. Of course we want it to move hearts, mm-hmm. be effective. It's mostly why I do everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, or I want such I, a vulnerable so much thing. my thirties was like wanting my dad to yeah. be proud. Yeah. And you, it is a, just such a, a vulnerable thing to go up there and to, to kind of put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's the weird, it's such a weird moment to talk to, if you're not praying for someone or like engaging in ministry to just interact with people socially. After oh, you like right after the preach, you've just yeah. done this thing that everyone was watching. And it's like, obviously a big, yeah. you, like you don't want them to say anything like, cause they feel they have to, yeah. but if they don't, it's like, man, this whole thing we just experienced, you're not acknowledging it. People are so critical of the pastor that's not like available after this, the message. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, I get it. Yeah. I'm like, I just want to hide in the yeah, background. Exactly. One of the things that you shared was like a moment where there was like a shift for you in terms of like whether you lamented about was it effective or not, like you articulate this kind of shift in thinking and I'm, yeah. yeah, I wonder if you could share that with me. Yeah, there's two things, and maybe I'll just share one. There was one thing more recently where I was like releasing content we had worked on that I thought, oh, this is controversial. You know, this is, yeah. Um, and I don't know how people will receive it. And it's easy to feel that way about a sermon you're delivering as well. And I was brought to an image of like one of the Marys with her perfume. Uh, breaking it open and pouring it out at the feet of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And she like some of the crowds criticizing, but Jesus goes, she's done a beautiful thing for me. And I felt an invitation from the Holy Spirit to view all my preaching and teaching and writing like that. Yeah. I'm just trying to do something beautiful for Jesus mm-hmm. and hopefully helpful for people. But he's the primary audience and so I'm going to break this open and pour it out at his feet wow. uh, to please his heart. That was an invitation from the Holy Spirit. That was more in the last six months that's been pretty liberating for me and given me yeah. a little bit of courage on releasing content even. I love that picture of like preaching faithfully to Jesus and having that in mind, like, God, I'm going to make this as an offering to you. Mm-hmm. I've, it's taken some pressure off, I feel. Because hmm. literally I'm preaching sermons sometimes where I don't think it's very good. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, okay, that's fine. But let this be an offering yeah. for you. Yeah. Um, the other thing was like years ago where, you know, the state of the church in K- 
Canada was really like, you know, it's all like doom and gloom, you know, and like new data is coming out. Yeah, new data is like coming out, but it's like ninety percent of people have left the church. Yeah, it's always it's never good news, and uh, and I care about the bride of Christ in Canada, and am giving a lot of my I life. I should say that's not a real stat. Ninety percent of people yeah, have not. Exactly. It was that's a bit of hyperbole. Like. Bit of hyperbole but. Yeah, but if you saw that coming out, you'd be like, yeah, I guess. Some days it feels that way. Yeah. Um, some days after you preach or when you're, it yeah. feels that way. Um, but I was reading Revelation chapter one and um, I was thinking about the context in which John is having this vision of Jesus who's in the center of the mm. church. And I'm like, oh man, it's the reign of Domitian. This is the first widespread persecution yeah, massive of persecution. Christians. His, all his friends are dead at this point. They've all been killed. All of John's friends. All the disciples. Yeah. And now he's and separated. He's, he's on, on the island of Patmos. Yeah. And in, there's like, not prison. many Christians in the empire. Some estimate like only 10,000 at this point, right? That number seems low to me, but like not a lot. And he's separated from the churches. There's this persecution. He doesn't know how they're doing. And just the might and power and symbolism and money and military strength of the empire is arrayed against this fledgling movement and how intimidating and scary that would feel. And then mm. Jesus shows up to him in the middle of that and puts a hand on his shoulder and says, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I was dead. I'm alive forevermore. I hold the keys of death in the grave. So I paraphrase. And I'm like, man. And then I thought about the fact that Jesus has built the church and continues to build the church and the growth of the church in the two-third world like today is exploding yeah and continues to explode like the continent of africa it's remarkable uh the way the church is going in iran in china in south america i mean it's it is remarkable what the lord is doing from a global perspective and really what he's been doing since the very beginning um and you know it's like the mustard seed of the kingdom beat the roman legion yeah. And every time you get up to preach or pastor or minister, regardless of what's happening right now in our country in this moment. Or in your city or, or in, in your, your church. There is an empty tomb and a resurrected Christ and the power and presence of the Holy Spirit who is still making things new. And um, you know the end of the story and it's going somewhere good. And so get up and speak and preach and serve with confidence uh, that the wind of the Spirit's at your back. And uh, God's work, working things out. Mm. Chesterton, again, was like five times in the history of the church. The church almost went to the dogs, and each time it was the dog that died. What were the five things he's talking about? I don't know. I mean, he it's was a, a Catholic, quote. so one of them's probably the Reformation, and I'm not entirely comfortable with that. <laughs> um, it's more, and also for dog lovers out there, I don't know if that's a great... Yeah, it could be tough. But the point is... Um, Jesus is ruling and reigning and he will get his way. Hmm. So have that humility and confidence to proclaim good news. I love it. Well, I'm really grateful um, for you taking the time to chat today. And it's fun to kind of interview you and spin mm -hmm. it around. And I think what's more than any, there's so much helpful content, but more than any, more than just helpful content that you shared, I think, when we do these conversations and I think about people listening like men and women in their commutes or 
you know, I don't know when they listen mm-hmm. to that besides commuting, but maybe they're, I don't well, know, exercising. Yeah, maybe they're, which is great that pastors are exercising. Yeah. And, um, my hope is you kind of feel part of this conversation. Like mm-hmm. one of the joys for me is talking about the craft of pastoring or the craft of preaching with mm-hmm. you when the mics are off. Cause it's something we give so much time to. Mm-hmm. And I hope that people aren't listening and, and feeling like, oh, this is really about technique. This is really just the conversation. Like we're, mm-hmm. I know that so many people listening, this is something that they think a lot about. Yeah. And if they were here at this table with us, they'd have so much to contribute about their context. Totally. And it's just fun to have this conversation. And I would prefer people to receive it as descriptive, not prescriptive. Yeah. This is describing a conversation we always have and yeah. how we think about things, but uh, it's an art preaching, I think. Yeah. So I wouldn't want people to hear it as overly prescriptive. Well, I love it. It's such a joy to chat about and grateful for your time today. Chris, thanks for letting us into your story and the helpful learnings you've gathered over years of preaching. Bless you as you continue to use your words to draw people to Jesus. Before we go, I want to express gratitude to a few people who helped make this episode happen. Special thanks to Nick Corbin for arranging and editing the interview with Chris, Jason for facilitating the conversation, and Will Lee for your contributions. The Canadian Church Leaders Podcast is one amongst a few things that we do at CCLN to strengthen and come alongside pastors in Canada. These episodes, along with our gatherings, learning communities, and resources are all made possible by a generous community of individuals, pastors, churches, and organizations who believe in serving pastors. If this mission of strengthening pastors is something that you feel your heart being moved to, we want to invite you to join our giving community at ccln.ca slash give, where you can make a one-time or regular donation. And for pastors who have benefited from our work at CCLN, we want to invite you and your church to partner with us. You can find out more about what that looks like at ccln.ca slash churchpartners. Thanks for considering becoming a part of this community that's lifting up pastors across our nation. Now, before you go, as mentioned earlier, our friend Chris from World Vision is going to send us off with a word about Chosen and how you can connect your church meaningfully with the work that they're doing. Here he is to close us off. Hey, pastors, it's Chris Schrader from the church engagement team at World Vision here. And we're so thrilled that we get the opportunity to partner together with organizations such as CCLN in empowering you as a leader, resourcing and providing new opportunities for you to engage with the global need. Today, I would like to introduce you to an extraordinary movement that's touching hearts and changing lives in churches and communities around the globe. It's called Chosen. And it's a new way for churches like yours to engage with the global need by turning traditional sponsorship on its head and placing the power to choose into the hands of children in communities in need around the globe. Yes, you heard that correctly. The children get to choose, not the other way around as we would typically work together with global communities. Through this innovative model, what happens is individuals from your congregation take a selfie, one of the most important photos that they can take. And those photos are sent to our communities where children who are in need get the opportunity to choose individuals from your community to have relationship with, empowering them and giving them agency from day one. 
I've seen how this experience can create deep and powerful emotional impact between church members and children within a global community, creating a transformational experience for both the donor and for the child. I've personally had the opportunity to be chosen, and I can tell you that it's an emotional experience. Uh, we've been chosen as a family by Christmas and by William in Kenya. And uh, I had the opportunity of, of experiencing uh, the process of Christmas and Will William choosing our family. And I have to say, it's something unlike anything I've experienced before. Even as I record this, I have their photos in front of me, and I remember them walking up to the strings with our photos on and looking around. And it felt a little bit like high school, like picking me in. And they walked up and and uh, they saw our photos and they felt drawn to our pictures and selected our family to be part of their journey and part of their developmental journey. When uh, Christmas came up specifically to the strings and saw our photo, he was poking our photo and I couldn't figure out why he was poking our photo. And uh, I found out after that he had told his mother that he was going to select a family that had the same number of kids as their own. And we've got four children. And so he was counting and just making sure that he got the numbers right. And then he slowly took the photo down and uh, brought it to the World Vision workers and saying, hey, this is who I've chosen. And so for me, that was a powerful experience and an experience and it's an experience that I've seen over and over again, something that we would like your church to experience as well. So today, I would encourage you to explore this idea of chosen together with World Vision. How can you do so? Just take out your phone right now and text the word chosen to 807-787-4625. We'll send you some links to experiences of congregations in Canada that have been impacted by chosen and the communities that they've had impact on as well. I promise you will be moved as I have been by these experiences. As you plan your next season of ministry, don't miss out on this opportunity to experience Chosen together as a congregation and to come alongside those in need around the globe. It truly is an innovative experience. Text CHOSEN to 807-787-4625 today. Thank you.